All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the well here at STSA. I'm glad to see so many faces here today. We are in the final week of a six-week series called Building Blocks. And if you're just kind of showing up here today, you're kind of coming at the end of the party, which is totally fine. We're happy to anyone join at any time. But if you want to catch up on everything that you missed thus far, because what we're talking about in this series is about how prayer is not just an act we do, it's a house that we build. So every week we've been building a different room in this house. And if you want to get caught up, the best thing that you can do is you can go on our YouTube page or any of our social media pages or go to stsa.church and click on the well, and you'll be able to find the past, all the past messages to get you caught up to speed. Because what we're doing today, even though it's a, you'd be more than happy, like it's great that you just kind of connect here today, but if you only get today without the past five weeks, you kind of missed the foundation of the house. Today, we're going to talk about the final room, the bedroom of the house of prayer. We've gone through the family room, which was simple prayer. We've gone through the living room, the structured prayer. We've gone through the den, the study with the praying through scripture. We talked last week about intercessory prayer, the dining room. And today we get up to the final room. And the final room in the house, the bedroom, is the place in the house where this actually, all that other stuff was to get us to this place. Because you know how, I don't know if this is just like a, a dad thing, okay, but this is definitely like a me thing. You know when you go on vacation right? And you drive, we go on vacation to Myrtle Beach. We go to pretty much the same place every year. You pack up the minivan or now we're the Prius, but whatever it is, you pack her up and you load all the stuff up and then you get there and everyone's tired. Everyone's grumpy. Everyone's hungry. Everyone's got to go to the bathroom. Like everything. My goal is just to get everyone and all the stuff in the house. Everyone get in their room. You go over there, just put everything in, lock the door, turn off the lights and get in the bedroom. And I say, ah, I've made it. This is my goal. And in the house of prayer, the same is also true. So we're going to talk today about the room in the house of prayer, which we've been aiming for this whole time, the place of rest, the place of intimacy with God. Like all the stuff that we want with God, we're going to talk today about the place where we can achieve that on a regular basis. But before I talk about where we achieve it, let me start by telling you a story. My daughter was in second grade. She had just started a new school. This was you know, so what, three years ago, three years ago. Yeah, she's in fifth grade. So this was her first year in her new school that she had just, uh, we just moved to a new home and now she's in a new school. And at the time there was like this event or whatever, like one of these dumb, okay, little shows we have to go watch. Sorry to say it. We all thinking the same thing. Like we've all know the story of the Indians and how they came and things like we don't need to hear it again from the little, so one of these shows, that you have to go to or else you're like shunned by society in second grade parenthood, okay? So yeah, I had to go to one of these events because my wife is working at the flexible schedule. So I got to go to this event. This is my first time going to one of these events. So I show up at this dumb little party. First thing, I came late, okay? And you know, it's like a big deal when you come late because the show has started and the door is like right there. So it's like, ah, you know, it's very awkward, all right? So I like walk in and of course, I'm dressed like, like this, so everyone's staring at me, like who's the new guy, all right? On top of it, what makes it worse, okay, for those who, who know my, my daughter, okay, you knew her back then, you would understand this. My daughter went through a phase, and she's okay with me telling this story, just in case you're wondering. She went through a phase where we were not allowed to take pictures of her. So she was in the phase of, you can come, like I will allow you to attend, but there was rules. You can't take a picture and you can't even look at me or talk at me. So I have to stand there like this, okay, pretending like I'm not looking at my daughter and just sneak a peek right there like that. So here I am, I walk in late. I'm the new guy, I'm dressed like this. I look like this. I'm standing in the corner, I'm not even, like everyone else is like this and I'm just standing there like this, okay? And you know what everyone else is thinking that time, security, okay? I'm just waiting for security to come through the roof or whatever it is and apprehend me. Luckily, as I'm standing there in the corner, just like, uh, I felt exactly like, you know what, when you're in seventh grade and you go to the dance and no one wants to talk to you? Okay, that, that was me, I'm in the corner, just waiting for someone. And then luckily, a lady came and started talking to me. And she said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. And she asked me, when someone says to me, can I ask you a question? You know what the question is, right? It's three words. What are you? Okay. What are you? Okay. So of course, if I'm in one of my moods, I can play around with this. You know, I can mess with the person. You know, I'm hungry, I'm tired, like I'm grumpy, I'm frustrated, whatever. I can say something like that. But in this situation, I said, let me play it safe. So I said, I'm a priest. What's a priest? And then we started to chat. 
And she's a very spiritual lady. Okay, it's a Christian school, so she was a very spiritual lady. So she had like heard of Orthodox, but she didn't know too much about it. She started asking me all these questions and I started to tell her. And then she started to ask what our worship is like on Sundays. So I explained to her, explained to her about the liturgy and the Eucharist and the altar and how we take communion and what we believe about communion. We just started going, okay? And I started telling her all this stuff. Something I said, I don't know what it was, opened the floodgates with the lady. Something I said set her off. Not that she was upset at me, but she started to complain about her church. And as I started to explain what we do in our church, she started to say, you know what? That's right. That's the right way. And you guys got it right. And she said, when she goes to her church on a Sunday, she's like, it's supposed to be a worship center, not a fashion show. And then she said the million dollar phrase that I wrote down at that time, and, I'll, and, and I always remember it. She said, she was speaking about her evangelical church, I think. She said, is this really how they worshiped in the New Testament? Is this really how they worshiped in the New Testament? The result of that conversation was, A, we invited her and her husband over for dinner. B, she invited me to speak to her women's group, okay, like some women's Bible study. And most importantly, security was not called that day. Let's go back to this lady friend of mine here. This lady was a very spiritual lady, very spiritual, like missions trips, like serving in her church. I think she's adopted multiple children, okay, from, from in different situations. You would be surprised that someone like this spiritual would be so frustrated with her church. But you know what? Not really. Even though it seems like it may be frustrating on the surface, I say not really. You know why? Because I believe, and it's my goal to convince you of this today, I believe that liturgical worship, which is the final room in the house of prayer, is what we were made for. And I believe that our souls are restless. Our souls don't find their home until they reach this room. Just like me on the vacation. I don't stop working and thinking and doing. I don't get to rest until I get to that room. I think the same is true when it comes to liturgical prayer. Because I believe that's what we were created for. We were not created. We didn't create ourselves. We were created as the object of God's affection. We were not created. We didn't make ourselves. Somebody created us for a purpose. We were put here not as standalone objects. We were created on this earth as objects to worship God. That's why we were created. That's our purpose. God said, I'm going to put this thing right here. And the way this thing, which is me and you, works is to worship him and to be one with him. And outside of oneness with God, this doesn't operate properly. And the way that we practice that oneness with God on a regular basis is liturgical worship. Liturgical worship is where we fulfill our theme verse for this series, Revelation chapter 3.20, and its truest sense, which says, is Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Intimacy, oneness, dining together. This is what we were made for. And my job today is to convince you that this is fulfilled at the table of the Lord in something called liturgical prayer. Let's take a step back before we get into the nuts and bolts. What does the word liturgy or liturgical mean? The word liturgy, okay, is now in a, now we use it in a, a like a meaning, a, a prayer service like the Eucharist or a mass, some people would call it. But the word liturgy itself doesn't mean anything spiritual. All it means is a group of people working together for the same purpose. It literally means the work of the people. So if a group of people were to go together and let's go feed the homeless, one could say, let's go liturgy together and feed the homeless. Liturgy just means a corporate act, something we do together. Or if we're going to go clean, uh, you know, a park, that is a liturgy of sorts where we are liturgying together as we clean the park. So in the church, in the Orthodox church, liturgy just means the framework where we do something together, some kind of corporate prayer. So what we do on Sunday mornings is liturgy of the Eucharist. And that means communion, table, bread, wine, body, and blood. Okay, when we do a baptism, that's also called a liturgy. That's the liturgy of baptism. A funeral is a liturgy. That's the funeral liturgy. All right, we have liturgy of water. We have all kinds of liturgical services. It just means a group of people getting together for a purpose. Now, for our purposes, it means what we do on Sunday morning. So I'll use the term liturgy and liturgy of the Eucharist kind of interchangeable. But just so you know what the term actually means. Think of the liturgy as the room 
And think of what happens in the liturgy as the event. So the bedroom is the room, and then the intimacy is the event. The liturgy is the room, and then what we do inside the liturgy, that's the event, that's the communion. So liturgy is just the room where communion takes place. Our goal is not the liturgy, our goal is the communion, but the communion happens in the liturgy. Does that make sense? Separate the room versus the activity which happens in the room. Where did this come from? Let's go, let's go some scripture here. Matthew chapter 26, who instituted the Eucharist, the liturgy of the Eucharist? Right here, the whole idea of communion is Jesus. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is what we do weekly. Now today, if you're kind of new to orthodoxy, you're kind of checking us out here. I'm gonna say some stuff that's gonna weird you out. And I'm gonna say some stuff that's gonna make you say, hey, wait a minute, is he speaking like metaphorically? Well, stick with me till the end on this one. Just give me a chance to explain. I'm not speaking metaphorically here. We believe that every single Sunday we come together and we receive the actual body and the actual blood of Christ, not a symbol, but a mystery. And a mystery, as I've said this before, a mystery means, the word mystery means you know what, you don't know how. You know what, you don't know how. You go to a murder mystery, somebody killed the butler. What, I know. How, I don't know, that's what I gotta figure out, it's a mystery. What, the butler's dead. How, I don't know, I gotta figure it out, it's a mystery. What, in the Eucharist, in communion, is this is the bread, which is not bread, it's the body of Christ. That's what, how, don't ask me how, that's a mystery. This is the blood, how, I don't know how. What I know, how I don't know. That's what a mystery means. Something that I know, but I don't know how. That's exactly what happens every time we receive communion. That's what Jesus is speaking about. Now you say, hey, wait a minute. Maybe he's speaking symbolically, just kind of spiritually. Well, in John chapter six, verse 53, he makes it even more clear. Look what he says. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And then he reiterates it here. For my flesh is food indeed. Indeed means not symbolically, not metaphorically, indeed. And my blood is drink, indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now again, church people raised in church, I say we eat his body and we drink his blood and you say, bring it on. Yeah, we love that. Non-church person, you're like, I beg your pardon? Like I walked into one of those kind of churches? Like that's kind of weird. And if you say it's kind of weird to eat somebody's body and drink somebody's blood, I say you're not alone. So don't let somebody tell you that you're weird for thinking that because you know when Jesus said this 2000 years ago, they thought it was weird as well. And a lot of people said, Jesus, you're speaking some kind of funny talk right here. And Jesus responded to them. Therefore, many of his disciples, John 6, 60, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Meaning like if you're like, you know, Father Anthony, I'm with you. I like the preaching. I like the music, but this is like hard. I say, that's fine. It's supposed to be hard. It is hard. It's, you're, you're right in the right place. Don't, don't, don't feel like you're the only one who thinks that. This is a hard saying. But this is what I don't want you to do. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Let me ask you a question. These guys who walked away from Jesus, they walked away because they couldn't get this idea of body is flesh. Or fle yeah. The, yeah, that his body is food indeed, and that his blood is drink indeed. They couldn't get that. They walked away. If Jesus was speaking metaphorically, do you think he would have let them walk away? Would Jesus have let them walk away from being his disciple from an, a misunderstanding of an analogy? I don't think so. The what? Body and blood. The how? I don't know. And the key, in my opinion, to understanding the Eucharist and understanding communion is actually not being so focused on the how. Like, not trying to get it to add up mathematically or scientifically. Like, this is not a science experiment where we're going to dissect it. We're going to take on faith what Jesus said, which is that, that his body, there it is right there. And his blood is there it is right there. We're going to take it on faith. And we are going to, for the rest of this session, take a step back not dissect the nuts and bolts. Let's take a step back. What is communion all about? What is Eucharist all about? And then secondly, why does that need a liturgy to have that? Why can't that happen outside the liturgy? Let's start with the first one. What's Eucharist all about? I say this, 
I know it's kind of a bold statement, but I believe that the Eucharist is the fulfillment of Christ's ministry on earth. That the Eucharist is the completion or the fulfillment or the perfection of Christ's ministry on earth. Everything Christ came to do led to the Eucharist and everything that we do leads to that Eucharist as well. The Eucharist is the top of the mountain. Everything led up to it, everything comes from it. It's the beginning of our week, it's the end of our week. It's the pinnacle, the climax of everything that we do. It's the fulfillment of Christ's ministry on earth. Why do I say that? If I, if I asked you, summarize for me, what's the ministry of Christ on this earth? What was it all about? What was Christ's purpose? Why did he come? Did he come to baptize us? Did he come to give us the Bible? Did he come, even watch this one, did he come just to die for us? Die, all those things are steps along the way. But what I wanna say is the purpose that Christ came to this earth was bigger than just any of those simple acts. And St. Paul speaks about in Colossians chapter one, verse 26, that he tells us right here, the purpose of Christ's ministry on this earth, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. St. Paul's setting this up saying, I got good news for you. Stuff that Moses couldn't figure out, stuff that David never saw, stuff that Solomon only dreamed about seeing, now has been revealed. What is it? To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, say with me, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The purpose of Christ's ministry was Christ in you. The reason that he came is to reunite God and man, because like I said, man was created image of God for God and man to be one. That's why in the Garden of Eden, there was intimacy between God and man. There was union. There was communion. And then sin came and broke the communion. And Christ came to repair that. That once again, God and man, no more separate. God and man, no more close. God and man, no more friend. God and man, one. That was the purpose of Christ. If you look at it, Moses, Old Testament, they saw God as on a mountain. Okay, and no one could approach that mountain except only certain people. And when they approached the mountain, it was rumbling and shaking and thunder and lightning. And they could only get so close to that mountain. And that's why, that's why God said, okay, I need to make a place. My goal is to dwell among you. Build me a tabernacle. And then got a little bit closer. Okay, but still, there was still like that wall. And then Christ came and Christ saw face to face with people. They said, wow, this is great. But he said, no, that's not it. Okay, it's great to see me. It's great to talk to me. It's great to pray to me. It's great to sing to me. It's great, like, all those great. I'm doing miracles. Like, that's great, but that's not the goal. The goal is that after I die, I rise, I ascend, and then I send my Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he lives where? Inside of you. And I, Christ, live in you through the Holy Spirit. That's the goal. That's the completion. That's the perfection that God would live in man once again through the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happens every time we gather for Eucharist on Sundays, is we relive Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension. Then we ask the Holy Spirit to descend upon us and upon this bread, that God himself would dwell inside this bread and that we would receive this bread and receive Christ in it. Same thing with the cup of wine. It's not easy to understand, but I'm gonna give you a quote right here again. I'm, I know I'm messing with your minds here today, but I'm gonna give you a quote here from a great orator, preacher, father of the church, St. John Chrysostom, who says this, listen carefully. He's talking about the Eucharist. We receive within us the same body, watch how many times the same body, of our Lord Christ that was born in the manger of Bethlehem, the same body that walked on the Sea of Galilee, the same body that was crucified on Calvary, the same body that was resurrected from the tomb, the same body that ascended into heavens and now sits at the right hand of the Father. There is no power in life greater than this. From the very beginning, the early Christians saw the Eucharist as the completion of Christ's ministry and the celebration of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the descent to the Holy Spirit. The Eucharist is for us as Christians what the intimacy in marriage is to a married couple. It's the oneness with God. It's the not face to face. It's the oneness, the intimacy that can only be accomplished at the height, that's the pinnacle of the relationship. That's the Eucharist. Now the question that you may be asking is, okay, Father Anthony, I'm with you. I'm all about the bread and the wine and I'm all about the Christ in us. But why does that require liturgical prayer? 
Like right now, I've been talking about the event, but now I'm talking about the room, okay? I believe in communion, but my church does it a different way. We don't do it with so much structure and formal and boring and standing and incense and stuff. Why do you need to be all that stuff? Why do you need to be so long? Why, got, why are we doing it every week? Why not just once a month? And is it really like really the body or more of like a remembrance? Why is liturgical prayer the context in which this event of communion takes place? I believe that's a great question to ask. And I'm never against not asking questions. I am, questioning is good. But the key when asking a question is make sure you ask the right person. So I believe that you should ask the question, why liturgical prayer? But I just need, I just need you to know that the right person to ask isn't you or me or each other. I think we should ask God that question. We should not ask God, God, or we should not ask ourselves, I'm sorry. We should not say, how do I want to have communion with God? We should say, God, how do you want to have communion with me? Like we should not say, how do I want to worship God? We should say, God, how do you want me to worship you? Because ultimately, God is the recipient of the worship. At least he should be. The worship is not for me, it's for God. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you need to go buy a present. Someone's birthday. Someone's birthday is coming up on, on Friday. And you need to go today to buy a present. What are you going to buy? Let's say I want you, let's say I need to buy a present. And I say, I don't have time. You know, here's, you know, 20 bucks. Go get me something good because I got a birthday party on Friday. Here's 20 bucks. Go buy a present that I can give to someone. What's the question you're going to ask? Let me see if you're smart. Whose birthday is it? Like, doesn't that matter? Like, is it your dad's birthday or your son's birthday? Is it a man's birthday or a woman's birthday? Like, who's the person that I'm getting the gift for? You don't just go, like, remember when we were kids? and we wanted a new football, so we got dad a new football for Christmas. Like, remember that? Okay, we all did that, right? So do we do the same thing when it comes to worship? And we tell God, okay, God, I'm gonna worship you. This is how I'm gonna worship you. And I don't wanna worship you that way anymore. I wanna worship you this way. And I don't wanna worship that way. I wanna do this way. I want to, this is why today, I'm not saying anything bad, but I'm just saying the reality of it is that the majority of churches out there are worshiping God the way they want, not the way God wants. I shouldn't say the majority, but many churches worshiping the way they want. That's why some will have this worship style. And then they'll change, no, we want this worship style. And then no, we want it to look like this. And then we want it to look like this. And we want it to change here, we want it to change here. Why is it changing if the recipient is an unchangeable God? And that's how we look at it in orthodoxy. We look at it and say liturgical worship is the same because the recipient of the worship is the same and that's God. My friend from the earlier story that I gave, this was exactly her problem. It was, there was a worship that was geared in her church, not towards necessarily what does God want, but towards what does the people want. And as the people changed, and as the people style, and as the people, as the audience changed, the worship continued to change. She struggled with that. Well, orthodoxy, we don't have that problem because we don't change. And the reason we don't change is because the audience doesn't change. It is the unchangeable God who is our audience. You say, well, who says that God wants it that way? Like, doesn't God just care about spirit? And doesn't God just want us to be sincere? Like, does it have to look a certain way? Again, great question. Let's ask God. Did God ever speak? And is it documented where he spoke about how he wants to be worshiped? Can you ever find a place where God is clear and says, this is how I'm to be worshiped? Absolutely. The entire Old Testament. We're gonna go back to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, all right, we see the first time that God gave instructions on how worship is to go. Don't worry about the level of detail. Don't, don't get caught up in that. But I want you to see the spirit that God gives these instructions in. And you tell me, is this a God who allows haphazard worship and allows worship to be dictated by how people want? Or is this a God of order who wants things to be done a certain way? Exodus 29, verse one through three. We're just gonna read a smattering from Exodus 29. You could go read like 15 chapters and it'll tell you all this stuff. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. God was ahead of the curve here on the wheat versus the white thing, okay? You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket, not two, and bring them in a basket with bull and the two rams. I'm fast forwarding to verse 15. You shall also take one ram and Aaron and his sons, you shall put, put their hands on the head of the ram 
You shall kill the ram. You shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them in pieces with its head. That sounds great. And he continues, continues, and he says at the end, thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Question. That passage that we just read, how much wiggle room did you see in there? You're like, well, we're thinking not a ram this week. We're thinking like a goat. We're thinking not necessarily like wheat flour. And we're thinking not uh, the oil the way you said it. We're thinking to go, there wasn't much wiggle room in there for like, yeah, whatever. You don't see in God a, yeah, whatever kind of attitude. Some people say, well, this is the Old Testament. The God is, is your God a different God from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Like the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament is not God, it's us. We changed from the old to the new. God did not change. So yes, the Old Testament details, we don't do them. We don't really bring the, the ram and the whatever it may be. But the principle that God likes worship prescribed in a certain way, that principle stands forever. And all the Old Testament, where God said, make the tabernacle for me this way, build it exactly this height, make it exactly of this wood, make the rings on the poles exactly this size, make sure that it's made of this material. What we see in there is that God, when it comes to worship, structures it a certain way. Why? Because he wants to be worshiped in a way that befits his glory, not a way that pleases us, not a way where we are the center of worship. We're not the audience. We're the giver. The giver doesn't determine the gift. The recipient does. Liturgical worship remains the same because the recipient remains the same. The recipient of our worship is the unchangeable, everlasting, infinite God who does not change. And like I said, the details have changed. He said, sacrifice the lamb. And the New Testament, we realized, ah, the lamb is actually him. So we don't really sacrifice the lamb, but we, under the principle of sacrifice, exists. In the Old Testament, it was bring the tithe of the first fruits and bring the pigeon and bring the grain. Well, we don't do that anymore, but the principle of bring what you earn and realize that the money is all belongs to God and offer to him what's valuable, that principle still remains. The principles remain. The details may change, but the principle is the same because the God is the same. In case you're still not convinced, I'm gonna go real quick, real quick on two reasons that our worship today is liturgical. Two reasons that our worship today is liturgical in case you're not convinced by what we saw in the Old Testament. We're gonna, we're gonna fast forward the Old Testament. So I'm gonna skip the Old Testament, even though that's very clear. But just for the sake of, I like to counter what you may be thinking. Two things that I'm gonna show you about liturgical worship. Liturgical worship, number one is biblical worship. If you say, I want to worship in a biblical way, then I say to you, liturgical worship is biblical. And when I say biblical, I'm not even talking about Old Testament. Old Testament is very, very clear. But let's, we'll even, I'll give you the Old Testament. Can we see traces of liturgical worship in the New Testament? For sure we see communion, breaking of bread. For sure we see that. We saw the breaking of the bread on the road to Emmaus. Okay, with Jesus with the disciples. We saw the breaking of the bread when Jesus rose from the dead and had breakfast by the sea. Okay, we see the breaking of bread, St. Paul on the, on the ship to Rome. Like we see breaking of bread everywhere. And everyone who was Jesus' disciple, the early church, the guys who knew it, every single one of them interpreted that as really his bread, his body and his blood, not in a spiritual way. Some people today will say, well, that was just spiritual. Okay, well, the people who lived in the first century, second century, third century, it was probably the first six, seven, eight centuries before even the idea that this is not the real body and blood of Christ. It was probably a thousand years before the first person said, hey, maybe it's not. Okay, so that, 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 that argument goes out the window. But with that said, forget about breaking of bread. I'm focusing specifically on liturgical worship right now. Can we see traces of that in the New Testament? Absolutely. I'll show you a verse right here from Acts chapter 13, verse two. And it makes it clear as day. Acts 13, two says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You see it right there? It's very clear. See it where it says liturgy right there? You see it? In case you don't know, that word ministered, that's a special word, ministered. It doesn't mean ministered the way you would say like ministered to the homeless or ministered 
to, you know, like volunteering in the church. Not that kind of minister. That word minister, we see that in different places. This word minister, and I'll tell you what it is in Greek, and you see if you can figure this out here. We'll put on our, our, our linguistics caps. The word in Greek is litorgonton. Litorgonton sounds a lot like what? Liturgy. It's the same word. So let me read it again. As they liturgy to the Lord. Because we already agreed before, liturgy just means a group of people getting together and do something together. It just meant corporate prayer. As they corporately pray together. And the other clue that, tra- that, 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 that shows us, as they liturgy together and fasted, which is what we do. We fast. We don't fast before we go serve the homeless. We don't fast before we clean up the chairs. But we do fast before we liturgy together. So as they liturgy to the Lord and fasted, then the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, separate Barnabas and Saul for me. So what you see right here, New Testament, Acts 13, this is roughly the year 50 AD, roughly uh, uh, less than two decades after Christ's ascension, resurrection, resurrection, ascension, roughly two decades, we see signs of the liturgy right there. And in fact, what I like about this passage right here is this liturgy. Holy Spirit is speaking to them. Sometimes people come to me and say, the liturgy is boring. Liturgy is dry. Liturgy is routine. And I have a famous response to that. People know my response to that. I've said it many times. Someone comes to me and says, liturgy is boring. You know what I respond? I say, you are boring. Your face is boring. We're talking about liturgy is boring. Liturgy is not boring. Just because you don't know what you're doing, just because you don't understand it, just because you don't believe, that doesn't mean it's boring. It's just because you, you waddled out of bed at 10 o'clock, okay, barely remember to brush your teeth, and you kind of straggled on in 15 minutes before the end and said, it's boring. You're boring. Liturgy is not boring. Liturgy is spirit-filled. Liturgy is dynamic. Liturgy is where the Holy Spirit is speaking. It's lively. It's fire. It's alive. That's what liturgy is. Just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that you are boring. That's number one. Liturgical worship is biblical. But here's the more important of it. Here's the more important. You know why liturgical worship is biblical? Liturgical worship is biblical because liturgical worship is heavenly. And when I say heavenly, I don't mean heavenly in a like, ah, like a bowl of ice cream. Wasn't that heavenly? I don't mean it like that. I mean like literally, that's what worship in heaven looks like, sounds like, tastes like, feels like. You say, wait a minute here. Now you're really kind of like you, Father Anthony, you saw heaven? You went up there and you saw heaven? Well, I haven't been up there and I've seen heaven, but I know people who have. They've written some of their accounts. We're going to read them in a minute. Before we read the accounts of people who have seen heaven and written, lived to write about it, there's a very important verse, two verses from Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, which set the tone for what I'm about to show you in, in the passages from Revelation and Isaiah. This passage, St. Paul talks about Old Testament worship. Listen to what he says. He says, there are priests, Old Testament, who offer gifts according to the law, who serve, here's the key phrase, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, see you make all things according to the pattern shown on you in the mountain. Copy and shadow. Imagine I have a car, a fancy car. Let's say, for example, a, what's a fancy car? 2011 Hyundai Sonata, right? That's like what the cream of the crop drive, okay, in case you didn't know. Let's say I have a Hyundai Sonata right here on the stage, and you're like, ooh, ah, isn't that great? And then let's say to you, let's say that I say to you, I have a picture of the Hyundai Sonata. Does the picture... Is it the same as the reality? Can you learn about the reality from the picture? Yes. The picture can teach you the color. The picture can show you that there's multiple colors. The picture can show you a lot about the reality. Now let's say I don't give you a picture, I give you the shadow. So I bring a light and I just show you the shadow of my Hyundai Sonata. Can that teach you anything? Yes. What can you learn from the shadow? You can learn that it's more this than this. It's wider than it is tall. You can learn that the end is kind of like straight down like that. 
You could learn that at the bottom, there's like these, seems like half round things at the bottom. You know, maybe like a watermelon or like a half a watermelon at the bottom. The shadow can teach you stuff and you were like, oh yeah, I, I, I think I get it. And then you see the picture and you're like, whoa, that picture, whoa, now I get it. Those aren't half watermelons, those are wheels. And now I see that it's gray. And now that I see that there's a silver thing. Oh my goodness, this is so cool. But then you see the reality. And the reality, when you get in the car, you're roaring down 66 at 12 miles an hour in rush hour traffic. Okay? <clears throat> the shadow, the copy, the reality. The reality is heaven. Heaven is the reality. Where Christ dwells eternally. And we will worship him eternally. The Old Testament was just a shadow. So in the Old Testament, God kind of shone a light on what worship was like in heaven. And they looked at it and they're like, well, we see from the shadow that there's supposed to be some kind of structure. There's an altar. There's a box in the middle. There's like all eyes. There's something in the middle where everyone's focused. And there's stuff that gets sacrificed on there. I think it's rams or I think it's sheep or I think it's whatever. The New Testament came along and it's like, oh my goodness, we saw a color photo. And we're like, oh my goodness, we didn't know what we were doing in the Old Testament. It's not a ram, it's not a lamb, it's Jesus himself. And we realized so much from that picture. But what I'm saying, the reality is in the kingdom of heaven, which we'll see when we get there. Hebrews 9 says the same thing, verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things better sacrifices than these. Heaven is the reality. You know, sometimes people say, like we're approaching Holy Week and Judas betrayed Christ. Why did Judas betray Christ? And some people will say, because the prophet said that he would. It was a prophecy that he would betray Christ. It's kind of backwards. It's not that Judas betrayed him because the prophet wrote it. So like a prophet wrote it, so Jesus was like, I gotta find someone to betray me. It's the opposite. The reality, Christ is the reality. And then because the reality happens, then someone in the Old Testament wrote about it prophetically. So the reality is heaven. And what we do today is a, re is, is a copy of what will be in heaven. So we're not dictating what the future is. The heaven is the heaven. That's the reality. Old Testament was a copy. I'm sorry, a shadow. New Testament, which we live in today, is a copy. Let's look at the reality. Two people saw the kingdom of heaven, lived to tell about it. First is John in the book of Revelation and see Isaiah the prophet. Revelation chapter four, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their head. So first thing we see there again. was a priest, he gets to sit here, but let's say he's standing, and he's clothed in white with a crown of gold on his head. Roughly like that. <laughs> Looks similar to what we do on every Sunday, doesn't it? Keeps going. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Do you see fire? When you come to our liturgical service? Absolutely. We got candles here, candles there. We like candles everywhere. There's smoke, there's all kinds of fun stuff. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And it talks about how there's these four creatures, these animals. One looks like a lion, one looks like a bull. Do we see those in the church? Here they come. Here come your creatures. And they show up every Sunday. All right, and they're ready to do what creatures do. They do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. Sounds a lot like what we do on Sundays, right? Let's go to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah wrote about it when he had a vision. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up on a train, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Every Sunday we recite that. Every church, liturgical church, recites that word for word because that's what it says right there. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. What's the smoke that you see in church every Sunday? Is incense. And some people, pause right here, some people don't like incense. Too traditional. Not the look we're going for. In the Old Testament, God commanded incense. In heaven, we see incense all the time. Baby Jesus got three presents for Christmas. And one of them was incense. You take away incense, you take away one-third of his Christmas gifts. <laughs> Why? Look what you got against incense. What, what? Clearly, God likes the incense. And when we don't use incense, it's simply my way of telling God, I want to worship you this way versus listening to how he wants to be worshipped. It goes on. Then one of the seraphim, seraphim is an angel, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. In heaven, from the throne, an angel dressed in white descends to Isaiah and says, Isaiah, I took something from the altar, which you can't touch, but I want you to open your mouth. And as I'm putting this in your mouth, I'm saying to you, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Or said another way, given for remission of sins and eternal life to those who partake of him. What's that? So we do every Sunday. I didn't get at least one awe for that. Come on. That's an awe. Yeah, I could have put an adult up there, but I put a kid to get a cheap awe, okay? That's what we do every Sunday. Someone comes dressed in white, an angel. An angel dressed in white comes to you every Sunday and says, open your mouth, given for remission of sins and eternal life to all who partake of it. That's what we do every Sunday. Back to this verse. You know why I come to church on Sundays? I come to get this touch on my mouth. You know what the pinnacle of my week is? Is this touch on my mouth. It's great, like we fellowship together, that's great. We uh, sing songs, that's great. We preach, okay, I put my heart and soul in this preaching, like that's great. We drink coffee, that's great. We do life groups, that's great. We do all kinds of fun stuff, all that stuff is great. All that stuff is great. But the pinnacle, what I come for, is this healing touch. This is what I need. I get worried that we show up on Sundays and it's all about me. What do I want versus God? What do I need from you? And his answer is, you need me inside you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'll give you a nice quote right here. from a guy who lived in the 19th century. He says, in the liturgy, we offer our temporal life with all its concerns, and in exchange, God gives us his divine life, which is eternal. We put all our life, our repentance, our thanksgiving, our intercession, the entire content of our heart and our prayer into the gifts of bread and wine, which we offer to God. And in response, he places his own life in the holy gifts then offers them back to us. The gift we offer to God every Sunday is not the bread and wine. It's ourselves in the bread and wine. The bread is just the tangible. Bread and wine, okay, but we'll start with the bread. It's just the tangible. And in that bread, I put my repentance. I put my gratitude. I put my, my, my requests. I put my faith. I put my entire life, my cares, my anxieties, my worries, my fears, my future, my past, my everything. I put it in the bread, my entire life, and I throw it up there on the altar. And then what Jesus does is he takes it, he blesses it, he sanctifies it, he breaks it, and then he gives it right back, but not the same. Because what he did is he made a switcheroonie. And when we pour ourselves in that bread, he takes it and pours himself in that same bread and gives it right back to us. Liturgical prayer is where we exchange our lives for the life of Jesus. We come and say, God, everything we have, we put here. We put it on the altar. 
And he says, everything I got to put it back in there. You know, every week I've been ending the message with a challenge. There's no challenge this week. This week is not a challenge. It's an invitation. There's no challenge. This is the rest. Like there's no, like the, the other stuff is the work to get to the rest. Like the other stuff was unpack the car to get to the bedroom. But this is the rest. This is an invitation to be one with Christ, to have intimacy with him, to invest everything that you got, to pour yourself into that bread, to pour all that you have, your life, all the earthly that you have. You put it into the bread, you put it on the altar, and then he pours everything from himself. And you made out like a bandit because you traded earthly for divine. You traded temporary for eternal. You traded your life for his life. I'm going to invite our music team to come back here up on stage, if y'all don't mind. We're wrapping up the series. And as we wrap up the series, again, remind you what I've been saying every single week, that prayer is not an act. Prayer is a home. And we work on the simple prayer. We work on the structured prayer. We do the scriptural prayer. We do the intercessory. Hey, those are just four kinds of prayer. I could have done a 12-week series if I wanted because there's that many kinds of prayer. There's all kinds of prayer. But the goal is to get all those kinds of prayer right so that we can have unity and oneness and communion with God. And that's what we experience in the divine liturgy in the Eucharist. And that's what we're going to pray. Our prayer as we wrap this thing up is to say, God, make me a home for you. Make me a home for you. Make me a home where you can dwell and live with me forever. Let's stand together.
desires that we would be a home for you. So we're asking you, Lord, that every single one of us, that you would look at us, Lord, and do whatever it takes inside of us to make us a home where you can dwell, that we can be one with you both today, tomorrow, and for every single day for the rest of our life and into eternity. These things we pray in the mighty name of your Son, the prayers of all your saints. Here, says we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.